As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. Hello, my friends. Wonderful news. Narelle Fraser is our guest on today's show, and I know that makes all of us very happy, happy, happy. Don't forget to check out the events tab on our Facebook page, especially if you're in Sydney or Melbourne, because you can come and see us live with Narelle. And Facebook is where you can find the links to get the tickets. You can also find a link there now to come and see us live with Sandra Pankhurst, the trauma cleaner in Melbourne, which is so delightful. And why not join us on Patreon so you're the first to know where else we will be all the time around Australia Narelle is definitely coming for you all over Australia, I promise. Patreon.com forward slash Aust True Crime Pod. Okay, great. On with the show. The following podcast contains accounts of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. And I remember thinking at the time, that is great evidence. If you hadn't seen him with his clothes off, you wouldn't know he had a hairy back.
Narelle Fraser is back on Australian True Crime, which is always wonderful. And on this episode, she tells us about the invention of the sexual assault squads that she worked in for many years and the wonderful woman who was instrumental in creating them. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Later in this episode, Narelle tells us about a particularly insidious perpetrator who used his status as a trusted holy man to take advantage of vulnerable women in his community. It's absolutely infuriating, of course, but it's also classic Narelle in so many ways. Before we get to that, though, we have to have a little catch up. Narelle. Narelle, Narelle. Shut up, everyone. It's Narelle. Narelle Fraser as I live and breathe. How are you? You're good. You look awfully well. Yes. I am awfully well. Are you filming your television program yet? Uh, No. You don't uh, look like you are, frankly. Oh, I thought I looked. You know, because you look well. I feel like when you start (laughs) start filming your TV show, surely then you're going to look a bit tired. Well, I'm actually starting to think about what I'll... You know, having my caravan, whether I'll have um, chilled water. Good. Still or sparkling. Still or sparkling. Mm -hmm. Um, But it'll be sparkling because it'll be bubbles. It's not going to be water. I'm not going to have that in my caravan. Molly, I met your sister and her best mate at one of our live shows. They were the best. And from now on, I'm demanding they're in my caravan whenever I work. (laughs) Don't tell them that. You'll never get rid of them. Oh, my goodness. They are awesome, those two. Wow. Janine and Irene. Janine and Irene. Yeah. Yeah, That's... It's got a ring to it, hasn't it? Hasn't it? What? (laughs) And so have they. We spoke about stuff that was just we'd met each other five minutes before and we were delving into very deep subjects. We were, weren't we? That was very funny. Janine and Irene and mostly how shocked they were at how many people had come to see us (laughs) (laughs) and how many times they told us that and I loved them. Anyway, enough of Janine and Irene. Exactly. Mm. This is about me, not my sister. Please. Mm. Yes. Um, I thought today I'd talk about a guy by the name of Omar Sharif. Well, wonderful actor. Uh, well, yes. I had no idea you were a film buff. Have you changed the whole <laughs> format? Well, I, well, actually, I've had quite a few dealings with Omar Sharif. Have you? Yes, I have. Um, so I thought I might talk about that today. And we go back to uh, September 1992 when I was um, at what we call Broadie CPS, and that was Broadmeadows Community Policing Squad. Uh, And in those days, CPS was primarily an office which investigated child abuse, uh, assaults of a, you know, a sexual nature, I suppose, against kids and adults, mostly women, but it didn't involve going to trial. So the sex offences were generally of a more minor nature, uh, which were heard in a magistrate's court. Now, I know what you're going to say. And I apologise by it's a most inappropriate description to say, like, no sexual assault is minor. But when you get a rape and then you get an indecent assault, say a minor indecent assault, not a minor, I'm saying it again, you know, to touch somebody on the breast, there's definitely, you know, not so serious and very serious. Well, I suppose we can think of it this way, that a major sexual assault, when we want that to go to court, we don't want that court to be held up by cases of people exposing themselves in parks necessarily, if they could go to the outer courts so that the major sexual assaults can get through the court system, the county court system, faster. But but also... Um, you know, with a trial, you've got to have room, you know, for instance, for the juries and jury selection and all that sort of stuff. So when I was a teenager, we, uh, me and a few friends got flashed at a school disco. One of the girls' mums took us to make a statement. At the time, we thought it was all a bit of a, a laugh because, you know, the police officer had to say was his penis erect or flaccid and we thought that was hilarious and it happened a couple of times as a kid and one of the girls we were with her dad was a cop and he like went running up the street because obviously adults know the seriousness of it we're just like oh who's that perv like flashing at us but but they did we took statements I don't know whatever came of it you know I don't know many women that haven't been flashed at. No, I don't no, know many Because either. I was just going to say I was a, I don't know, an eight-year-old, I yeah. think. No. Yeah, at Essendon at the old um, airport. Yeah, I got flashed at. Yeah. And a you never forget girl. it. Oh, that's terrible. It is, but. I've had, fr- fr- what do they call that thing where people rub up to you, but it's. Frottage. Frottage. That happened to me in London. Someone got very close and I knew, I was like, 
I know this isn't right. This isn't just not enough room, but, you know, you try to. Isn't it funny? Why why don't we say, excuse me, that, you know, like, why don't we do that? I was young. I just didn't do it. I'd be scared too. I was, yeah. That's my point. Yeah. But as, you know, know people say, well, why do you let them do it? Well, you don't let them, but it's just so awkward. Yep. And you don't want to make a scene. Isn't that silly? You don't well, want to so make a scene. this is why we, still, we want it dealt with. We definitely Absolutely. want, you know, proper detectives like you yeah. to yeah. deal with these yeah. people and this is the system through which we do it. What happened was that um, if a detective, for instance, in another place in um, Broadmeadows, if he got a, a case about, you know, an indecent assault or something, what would happen is they would ring our office because most of us were women, most of us were female. They'd ring our office and say, um, could somebody take a statement? Um, we've got a victim of a sexual assault here. Uh, so that's what we used to do. Basically, I suppose we were looked upon as um, support for the detectives that were doing sexual assaults. We also did our own jobs, but as I said, they were of a more minor nature. I don't like that word. I don't know what other word we can well, use. Well, you know what? Let's I know forgive what you. you. No, well, let's yeah. say this is the official word that was used and let's all just get over it yes. and go ahead with that. Yes. Thank you very much. No worries. We would also organise if uh, the, um, and generally it was females, mm-hmm. but if they needed a medical examination, for instance, and this is with the detective, if he's in charge of the job, we would organise, we'd get the statement, we'd um, establish the rapport, we'd support the person going to court and all that sort of stuff and organise medical examinations and all that sort of stuff. It was seen, I suppose, as an important role, but we're also the butt of a lot of jokes because we weren't really given the responsibility of doing investigations. You know, that was a detective's job. We were often referred to as the skirts. And this is way back in like the late 80s, early 90s, because most of us were female. We did have one or two males who worked with us who were exceptional. They were really gentle and kind, lovely men, but generally we um, it was full of women. And the reputation, I suppose, we had in those days was of being a paid babysitter in many respects because speaking with children and adults who'd been sexually assaulted, molested or whatever, victims of violence, that was seen as women's work. And I think I believe a lot of people, a lot of men took advantage of that and had us look after kids while they were saying interview a mother or father. I found that really frustrating and really offensive because I didn't have kids and most of the people that were interviewing, yeah. you know, a, a crook or whatever, they did have kids. They were fathers. Correct. Right. So they had more experience with kids it than you did. It used to piss me off yeah. something chronic. And they just sort of, oh, can you look after these kids for a while? That used to really annoy me. However, on the flip side of that, I really loved working with, with victims and I loved working with kids. So in one sense, I got offended. But in another sense, it was just nice to spend time and, you know, help kids, I suppose, that were severely traumatised. Now, at CPS, we were blessed to have a great boss, probably the best boss I've ever had. Her name was Lorraine, Lorraine Blackwell. She was really highly respected. She was a really strong woman. Like, she joined policing in the 70s, you know, when they had handbags. They weren't allowed to be married, all this you know, bullshit, really. <laughs> she was my first real female role model, but what a model she was. She's still a really dear friend of mine. In fact, our whole office adored her, both male and female. And we are all, like, we worked together 30 years ago now, but we're all still really close to this day. She's Lorraine is still such a very dear friend. She was nothing like any boss I'd ever worked with. She used to cook scones of a Thursday. She'd put on her apron and she'd go missing for about an hour every Thursday morning and nobody ever came looking for Lorraine because they knew that Lorraine had a very, very important job to do and she couldn't be interrupted. She was cooking scones. She was no pushover and she expected us to work hard and if we didn't pull our weight, we'd be hauled into her office, which nobody enjoyed because it used to reek of smoke and you had to have a GPS to find her chair due to the haze in her office. (laughs) She thought that by opening a window uh, that the smoke haze would just, you know, and the smell would just completely disappear (laughs) because at this stage, this was in probably the early 90s, smoking had just been banned Yeah, and nobody was going to tell Lorraine you can't smoke there. You couldn't pull the wool over Lorraine's eyes. Anyway, (laughs) she was caught one time with a boss. I just um, remember him waltzing into the office unannounced 
and I can still see to this day a drawer. She'd put a smoke in a drawer and the drawer was you know, was smoking. Seriously. It was so but all the bosses knew she smoked. She disregarded every warning, every station instruction, but to the delight of the bosses in trying to catch her out. But nothing had panic her. In fact, grown men, uh, much higher rank than Lorraine, would shake in their boots whenever Lorraine wanted a quote quiet word with them in their office because the word was just agree with anything Lorraine says. I want to meet Lorraine. Because mm. what? just give her what she wants because she'll never shut up. <laughs> so just give her what she wants and get her out of the, house, out of the office. Anyway, she'd, she really was, she would fight tooth and nail for us. She'd never back down and she was just such a trailblazer. She had so many great sayings, a lot of what I can't, I can't <laughs> tell today. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did like the one and I still use it today. She used to say, Tell him, and it was generally a detective, tell him to pull his head out of his ass and take a good look around because the sun will still be shining tomorrow. <laughs> and I still say that. Tell him to take Tell anyway, him. Um, Love it. So the reason I'm telling you about Lorraine is she was a bit of a trailblazer and what she did was from the 70s, she is the best advocate. She feels very strongly about victims. She's always been, whether it's a victim of a sexual assault, any sort of assault, any victim, Lorraine was a great advocate for them. And what she always wanted was a standalone sexual assault unit where people would feel welcomed, they'd feel supported, and they they would be you know, cared for and supported. And really, back in the early 80s, sexual assaults weren't considered like they are now. And I know of detectives way back then that somebody would come in about a rape, for instance, or a really, well, a sexual assault. And the detectives often weren't confident and it was seen as a, like a second-rate offence. And they'd almost try and talk the victim out of it or was really, we've come a long way, a long way. Anyway, Lorraine always wanted this special standalone unit and I reckon it's taken 25 years, but now we've got them. When I was at Broadie CPS and, you know, I was working under Lorraine, they had this special arrangement where one member of Lorraine's office would go into the rape squad and do a stint in the rape squad. She was great mates with the boss at the rape squad, Danny Maloney, and they had this arrangement. Just number one to help us to go into the rape squad and see how, you know, the detectives um, handle a rape investigation, but also us going in there help the detectives because we would take statements and we do all that support stuff. Anyway, the day that I started my stint in there, that's the day I remember thinking I want to be a detective. Mm. It, just the minute I walked in, I thought, wow, what? It was just so, this sounds wrong, but it was exciting. You know, these were really, these were offenders unknown and people that had come into, like, generally men that would break into people's houses. Like, this is, you know, the, the top. The top, that sounds terrible. I know what you mean. It's It's like a real challenge to go and catch them. Yeah, it was a challenge. Because I remember you saying that the first squad that you dreamt of being part of was the sex offenders squad. So this is the moment that you realised, I want to be part of this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it probably helped. I was referred to often as a shit magnet. What would happen is, you know, if there was a really... I mean, I know I say that about you, but I didn't know I wasn't the only one. If... (laughs) If there was ever if there was ever a big job happening, oh, I don't know, I just always used to be on, you know, and I'd get the job. It was just, you know, yeah. it was sort of funny but sort of not. Yeah. Anyway, it's the Sunday before I start at the rape squad for my stint, my three-month stint, all very exciting, and it's the Sunday before and I, I was living in Ascot Vale at the time and I went down the street for something. Anyway, I see all the boys from the rape squad at this outside this unit. Anyway, of course, I go up and, okay, what's going on? Anyway, it was um, one of um, Christopher Clarence Hall, the Ascot Vale rapist. It was one of his victims that had been raped overnight, the beautiful little old Iris, who was 92. And the boys said to me, what are you doing today, Fraze? And I said, oh, well, I'm just going down the street or something. They said, do you want to start now? So I took the statement from 
the beautiful little old iris, you've got no idea how difficult it is to take, n- number one, to take a rape statement. Mm. And, you know, to get them to explain everything, you know, about we were talking before about flaccid and erect penises. Yeah. Well, believe me, that's nothing yeah. compared yeah. to, you know, the questions you have to ask and what happened then and what position were you in and what yeah. did he do, you know. It's so hard. Oh, it's terrible. Um, but, you know, Iris made it very, so much easier. She was a real funny old old lady. It's you know? amazing, isn't it? The better statement you take mm the more chance you've got of identifying him, you know, so... Um, it and the was fact a- that you were walking past when Iris needed you, yep. that's amazing. You didn't know she was sitting there needing you and there you were. Yeah, it's... You never forget those sort of things. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, so what happened was Lorraine was eventually um, successful in... And it, it wasn't easy. You know, Lorraine had to uh, fight tooth and nail, but she eventually got a little sex offences squad at Broadie. And so what it was was one member from the um, CPS who wasn't a detective and then what happened is a detective from uh, the roundabout stations that had detectives like Broadmeadows, Brunswick and Coburg, they had one detective come and work in our office. So we had one detective and one senior constable. The first one we got, the first detective, and he was there under sufferance. He'd been naughty. He'd done something. I can't remember what it was, but he'd gone. He'd been sent to our office because it was a bit of a joke, you know, that, oh, you're going to the skirt squad, you know, and, uh, oh, you're working with all those women. And anyway, he went there under sufferance. Maximilian, we used to call him. He was the most knockabout bloke. You know, he, he was just lovely, but he didn't want to be there. Anyway, in the end, he tried to stay for as long as he could. He absolutely loved it. He was a knockabout and he loved a drink and he loved women, but he loved genuinely loved women's yeah. company and he was funny and anyway, we loved Maximilian and he ended up staying for quite a while. Anyway, one of the jobs, forward 25 years, and we have now got standalone sockets in every part of the state. So Lorraine's wish way back in the 70s, in fact, it's yeah, it would have been at least 25 years until they were actually formed. But now we have sex offence and child abuse investigative teams. They are so highly trained That's now. That's the socket, sex abuse. Yep. Sex, uh, sex offence and child abuse investigative teams, sockets. They have really extensive training now. It's all like psychological, memory, behavioural science. They're so highly trained now and people are now tr- trying to get in like they're putting their name down and having to wait. So Maximilian and I, the first, one of my sort of first jobs when I came back from the rape squad, I got the job with Max. So the two of us are working together. And we started getting some wins, Max and I, and I think people started to think, oh, you know, some not doing too bad a job, these two. Anyway, so one of the jobs was what I'm going to talk about today. That is a very, very long introduction. It's so good, though. <laughs> Just keep talking about this shit. Yeah. Talk about um, Lorraine some more. I want to hear about the skirts yeah, back in the day. Great. Well, let me tell you that the skirts suddenly became the ants' pants. Oh, oh bad. Wow. Mm. Um, yeah, um, be careful, Michelle. I might actually take over your comedy <laughs> sketches. Very good. Um, and the skirts started wearing the trousers. Yeah. Not bad, eh? Anyway, so <laughs> Operation Chivago was our first real big operation. Operation Zhivago is the name of the case we're talking about after the break and the reason for that is kind of hilarious but unfortunately of course the crimes at the heart of it are not. Narelle will be back shortly to tell us all about it. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Coming up on Australian True Crime, how did a hairy back help Narelle catch a serial sex pest? But first, have you ever wondered how police come up with the names for their operations and task forces? Well, you're about to find out. In those days, we were able to name our own operations. But of course, the fun police stopped that because there were people that um, had very um, um, inappropriate names for operations. Um, you so, might be one of them, but go on. So the fun police became aware of this rather risque, you know, inappropriate names that were happening So and double meanings, entendres, you know. <laughs> so eventually it was decided that the names had to be chosen from a list, of course, that operations intelligence gave you. So you couldn't, you know, took all the fun out of it. However, I was, uh, this was, that was after. Um, Operation Chivago. Um, the reason I called it that, for those that don't know, is that my main target, our main target, was Omar Sharif. Now, Omar Sharif was a very famous actor in the 50s, 40s, 50s? Probably 60s and 70s. And well, Dr. Chivago was the 60s. That's why I called it Operation Chivago, because Omar Sharif. Anyway, it was a lot of fun, but the Omar Sharif that I dealt with was a Campbellfield cabinet maker. He was not the famous actor. And Omar Sharif was born in Turkey in about 47. He came to Australia in the late 70s and established himself as a pretty skilled cabinet maker in Campbellfield. He owned a factory and this was in the 80s and he was married and had a couple of children. Now, Omar Sharif was um, Muslim and he was known as what's called a hoja. I think that's how you describe it. And what he, apart from his cabinet business, he claimed to have undertaken like a special study in order to be a hoja. And a hoja is like a professor or um, a teacher in Muslim school or college. He's like a a headmaster, I suppose. And they can be described as a a religious leader in uh, the Islamic faith. And they offer members of the Islamic community help and assistance in religious, spiritual and worldly matters. So I believe that's what a hoja is. I think I'm saying it right. So what Sharif did was that he offered advice to people of all different faiths, Muslim and non-Muslim, who would visit him in his capacity as a hoja. But he developed a really, a really strong and very good reputation for providing like inspiration and special healing powers. I suppose another word you could use is a faith healer. Um, Many people, mostly women, sought his healing powers to help with all sorts of problems, but they were mostly personal. And over a period of um, a couple of months, I became aware of four women who had all consulted him between about 89 and 94 with a view to obtaining advice and help with marital problems, you know, all sorts of stuff. 
and all of the incidents that they were involved with, they followed a very, very similar pattern. Our first victim, she had her first appointment with Omar Sharif as a faith healer in January 89. She was in her early 20s. She was Turkish. She was introduced through a friend because he had a reputation like people would, you know, I've been to see this great faith healer. And and we love that. Yes. Oh, God, we love that. If a friend says I have seen the yeah. most amazing clairvoyant or whatever, we're like, give me that phone number, I'm yeah. there. Exactly. Yeah. So, and he had a very good reputation, yeah. I have to say. Um, and this young girl was um, having personal problems and she'd heard that Sharif had spiritual powers which could heal people. So the first appointment, everything's fine. But what he says is to the next appointment, I want you to bring three toenail clippings, three fingernail clippings, a couple of strands of your hair and a bottle of water. She goes to the second appointment about a month later and this time... Instead of seeing her down in the business area, he takes her upstairs to what he referred to as his special room. Mm. And uh, they go up there and she's told uh, to lay, there's a mattress in the room. That's all that there was. There's a mattress. So he tells her to lay down and then he's got this book and he's looking at the book. He's standing up. She's lying down. He's looking at the book and he's staring at his thumbnail. It's sort of like how she described it, as though he was sort of getting information from his thumbnail. And what he started to do was he started to pray over her and he began writing in air sort of over her body, but from, you know, like he's standing and she's lying. And he's writing with his finger while he's reciting this prayer. And then he tells her, to remove her clothing. Oh, God. To enable the prayer to work. So then he begins writing with his finger on her body. So he's now kneeling next to her on the ground and he's touching her breasts and her vagina over her underpants. And then he says, look, I need some vaginal fluid. Mm. I know it's easy for us all just like really? No, I get it. But yeah. I do too. Yeah. If you're vulnerable, correct. You know, and also and you intimidate. Like it's like we were saying before about men rubbing up against you in public transport. I actually do understand how you could just be thinking to yourself, just get through it. Yeah, it'll be over. When it's over, I'll deal with it. In mm. a, you know, like just uh, just get through it. And I think, and you're right, Em. Like the. These women, they are very vulnerable yeah. that are going to him. Yeah, and he is this man who's got this great, rep- this yeah. really good reputation yeah. for being a faith healer. And do you question a male yeah. in some authority if you're from Absolutely. A, you know, a different and culture? And he's Turkish, she's Turkish, yeah. and it's like, you tr- it's like us going to a doctor. You trust yeah. a doctor, don't yep, you? True. Yeah. Larry yeah. Nasser, that gymnast coach, that's yeah. how he got away with offending for so long. So... He says that he needs to insert his finger into her vagina, but what he tells her, it's just so cruel, what he tells her that if she doesn't allow him to do it, she's going to go crazy because the devil's inside you. And also she's there because she believes he can do magic stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so and when she leaves, he says that you can't tell anyone because you'll go crazy. So she doesn't tell anyone. However, she never went back. It took years for her to deal with what he'd done and to work up the courage um, to come to the police. And I've got to say she was incredibly brave but so humiliated and so embarrassed. She initially came to me. This was in about, so this would be at least a couple of years after it had happened, but she was just really seeking advice and she was adamant she didn't want to go to court, obviously, because court is open, people, you know, and then she would be ridiculed. I'm, I'm sure she would have been ridiculed, you know. So, but she really just wanted to talk to someone and I think just find out, you know, is, the, you know, can he actually do that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but she was so, oh, I can't uh, think it, shy, I suppose, because she couldn't even say the word vagina, you know, like she'd point to it and, and, for her to tell me what he'd done, you can't just point. Like, you've got to say so. You know, so, gee, she was awkward. As in, she felt so awkward. But I suppose after a while, she started to realise that what she was actually thinking was right, that it was wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, but 
everything to do with going to see Omar Sharif was secret, you know, because, well, she was so um, embarrassed, I suppose. And I said to her, and my experience with sex offences was, no way did I think that that was a one-off. And I said to her, he's clearly got a bit of a, a routine and he may not do it to everyone, but I don't think you're a one-off anyway. The bottom line is I found another woman and I I think it might have been the woman that had referred her and somehow I found somebody else. And I said, if I find somebody else, might that change your mind about going to court? And I started to get her confidence, I suppose, and her trust that I wasn't going to laugh at her. In fact, quite the opposite. I just felt so... I felt embarrassed for her, mm. you know. At that time, I knew nothing about Muslims. I still, I've got to admit, I still don't know a great deal. I don't know a great deal about their beliefs, their views and all that sort of stuff. But I eventually spoke to another woman. And what you said before him is true, that what he used to do is he used to prey on their vulnerability because everyone that is coming to see him has got a problem. And nearly, I don't think there was never found a man that had been to see him. They were all women. It came clear to Max and I that a lot of his people, he was obviously having a lot of people visiting. So what we did was we did a bit of our own surveillance and we just parked near the car park to the um, furniture business one day. And, oh, my God, the cars that would come in and, you know, most, I don't know, I'm uh, assuming here, but a lot of people that come to see a furniture factory might be a man and a woman, you know, what sort of couch do you want, yeah. Dale, you know, all that sort of stuff. But these were all single women. It was almost like every hour or every half hour, like it was like a busload. Yeah. It was amazing. Mm. But that's how popular, I suppose, he was. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been to Clairvoyance before and you think to yourself, God, I'm paying 100 150 bucks to see this person, sometimes up to 200 mm. or more, and there's someone in right before you mm. and someone waiting when you finish, and you and it's cash, and you yeah. think to yourself, geez, if they're doing this every day. The good ones, you can't get in to see months. them, yeah. So I can understand what you're saying. They would have been in and out all day, every day. So he could pick and choose which ones Absolutely. he decided. And in order to keep that flow coming, he would have to not sexually assault most of them because he needs most of them to go away and spruik for him. It was incredible what we saw. I can't remember really how we ended up identifying three women, but they were all so brave and they eventually became strong enough, I suppose, and trusted me and Max enough to give us, uh, to provide a statement. Well, how relieved were they when you told them they weren't the only ones? Oh, very. Like, yeah. it was almost like you could see the blood drain out of their face. Yeah. Like, it was just so, vind- I suppose they felt, a- well, vindicated's probably the wrong word. Believed, well, you yeah. know. Yeah. 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 So Max and I started our, um, planning our operation, like how we were going to, um, you know, get him and how we're going to find more women and that. The second victim that came to us, she was uh, Iranian and she came to Australia in 87. So she'd only been in Australia maybe, oh, I don't know, three or four years. She was having marital problems again. She heard of uh, Sharif's reputation as a respected and like a gifted spiritual healer. She saw him twice. And on both occasions, again, he asked her to bring things. Now, this time, what he asked the woman to bring was stones. I don't know what sort of stones. Stones from her driveway, I think. A lemon and some water. On the second visit again, he goes, takes her up to the special room. And this time, uh, he locked the door. He didn't lock the, uh, the door with the other woman. This time, he locks the door. And what he does is she's sitting on a chair and he opens his hands towards it, like sort of to give you a cuddle, you know, you can, that sort of thing. But he opens his hands and he asks her to stand up and to take his hand. And then without questioning her or asking her, he then gets her to turn around. He takes off her bra and he's reading the Quran as he's taking off her bra. What he does then is he sucks both her breasts and he inserts his finger into her vagina while he's reading from the Quran. Oh, no. Yeah. And he says something along the lines of, uh, you got big problem. Uh, the devil is inside you and I need to remove it a very special way. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Uh, or else you will die. Like, I just... It's mm. abuse, it's spiritual abuse, it's yeah, sexual yeah, it abuse, really it's is. everything. It's everything. The third victim, yep 
pretty much the same sort of MO. Um, but this time I thought it was interesting that the woman said that he had a really hairy back. And I remember thinking at the time, that is great evidence. If you hadn't seen him with his clothes off, you wouldn't know he had a hairy back. So why does she know that? Yeah. So when she said that, I thought to myself, Max and I had discussed it and we both said, when we get him, we're going to do a forensic procedure and we're going to get a photograph of his back. So he did the same thing with this woman, digital penetration, uh, bizarre items, you know, to bring upstairs at the special room, all these rituals to erase the, the signs of the devil. Now, I'll just explain here that the digital penetration of a vagina without consent or consent, which is, I suppose, going through fraudulent means, is a really serious offence. Consent, the whole issue of consent can be argued in court for days, yeah. sometimes weeks. It's never very rarely straightforward, like anything to do with the law, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But legally, what consent means is a free agreement and free agreement doesn't mean, for instance, say a person submitting because of fear or force of fear to that person or someone else, which I don't think was appropriate in this case. But one of them was that, sorry, again, consent is also where the person submits because of fear of harm mm -hmm. of any type. Well, that's right. Yes, you can put your finger inside my vagina because I believe that if you don't, I'm going to go crazy yeah. or I believe if you don't, I'm going to die. Yep. That's not free. That is not free agreement, no, right? Yes. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, sometimes it can also mean like if the person's, a, somebody cannot um, uh, consent, it's not free agreement, say if you're asleep, unconscious, yeah. or, you know, you've no. had a lot to drink and somebody wants to have sex with you. Um, but also one of the other uh, points is that with consent, um, free agreement is not where the person is mistaken about the sexual nature of the act or the identity of the person. Okay. So there, again, yep. she's thinking he's going to be... Um, Taking the devil out or whatever. Correct, yeah. yep. And also the person can sometimes um, uh, mistakenly believe that the act is for medical or hygienic purposes. Now, maybe you could argue with this that the medical side is to get the devil out. Yeah. I, you know, so... It's clearly... Yeah. Um, oh, God, these poor women. This oh is yeah, so yeah. horrible. But what we ended up um, charging him with was a, a charge called um, procuring sexual penetration by threats or fraud. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's in the Crimes Act, oh, I don't know, Section 57 or something. But anyway, basically it's about that a person can't um, threat, make threats or intimidate a person to take part in sex, you know, sexual penetration, and they can't by fraudulent means. How many years has he been at it by the time you... I don't actually know. I would think, I would think at least a couple. Yeah, because I was just thinking the first girl who came to you for advice, you said was a couple of years after yes. she had seen him. So, yep. yeah, a couple yep. of years yep. at least. Yeah, so clearly it's not free agreement, right, because they haven't consented in that sense. So... What we decide to do is we decide to get some – remember me telling you that we have surveillance teams that are police and we call them the dogs? Yeah. Remember me telling you about yes. the dogs? Yeah. So what happens is we discuss a plan and what the dogs come up with is, look, we've got a Turkish woman on our team. How about if she goes to him under the guise of seeking help with personal problems? Now, we had to be very careful because obviously – we don't want her to be offended against, but what we're trying to do is to corroborate, I suppose, and strengthen what these women have said because it is so bizarre and so unbelievable to many that we need some sort of corroboration. So it worked pretty well. It worked to the point where it, it didn't take the investigation much further but he and he didn't take her up to the special room, but he talked about the special room when she came next time and he did ask her the next time to bring some bizarre sort of items. So this sort of evidence is really helpful because if he, you know, in our interview, if he says, oh, I just purely do uh, furniture here, I don't do anything like that, at least then we've got evidence, not just from these women but from you know, a policewoman to say, well, I went there and, you know, he read the Quran and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So it wasn't earth shattering, but it was certainly, it certainly helped. 
part of this investigation, I had to go and see uh, two imams um, at the Preston Mosque, and they were incredible. But they were absolutely gobsmacked, like they were horrified. It gave me a really valuable insight into the Islamic faith and their practices. According to their teachings of the Quran, he had no right, Sharif had no right to even be in a room alone with these women. So we did that. We had three women now that we um, had uh, statements from. So we did a search, we executed a search warrant on his business. And what we were doing, we were looking for evidence to corroborate our victim's stories. But also one of the women had said that up in the special room, she'd thought, she thought she'd seen a firearm. Oh. So what he'd do is, um, I think what he was obviously doing is um, uh, just having that drawer open, just again, another form of um, intimidation, intimidation, fear, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, But what we were also looking for was, say, appointment books and cash and all this sort of stuff, anything that would afford evidence for the offences. And basically we found everything we were looking for, including the firearm. We found that. And we arrested him and uh, interviewed him back at Broadie. During the interview, he denied everything, but he did agree. He agreed that he was a faith healer. And he thought nothing of getting them to bring all these bizarre items, but, of course, he denied anything, you know, sexual touching or whatever. We did have a forensic procedure on his back, and it was terribly hairy. But anyway, it did beg the question, if she'd never seen him with his clothes off, how would she know he had a hairy back? He was eventually charged. He pleaded guilty. So it was good because he saved the women from um, having to give evidence and further humiliate and embarrass themselves, I suppose. He was jailed in 1997 for eight years with a minimum of six, but it was reduced on appeal. Yeah. However. What was his reasons for getting it reduced? uh, I can't remember what it was now. What defence can you possibly put up for that? It's wrong, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Like, what so about those poor women? Yeah, that's right. I know. They've got to live with that. Forget about him. Yeah. You know, he's – and these are only – and believe me, these are only three. Right. Yeah, there would be more, yeah. way more. Oh, and they – it would just – anyway. So I thought it was interesting in the court that Sharif's counsel requested that he be sentenced as a sincere hosier who unfortunately on this these particular occasions he'd abused his trust. But the judge apparently took the view that his claim uh, to have acted responsibly in the case of the women with a view to helping them was so extravagant it was fanciful. So thank God there was some common sense. Because he had obviously plans of picking up his career where, where he left off when he got out of prison. There was lots and lots of evidence presented to court, written material, talking about his favourable standing in the community. Did it get much media, this case? Not really. What happened was that the matter was reported in the Herald Sun. So the court case, right, and the fact that because it was a bit different, the faith healing bit. Mm. So what happened was further women came forward. Their stories were so similar But what these women said, which the others hadn't, was that it included penile penetration of one woman. I can remember she was so badly injured, she bled for weeks and was so embarrassed and humiliated, it took her a long time to go to the doctor. And when she eventually did go to the doctor, um, he organised, thank God, he organised counselling for her. And so the counsellor rang me and said, I've got this woman here, um, another victim of Omar Sharif. So she was eventually, she came to me and, oh, what she told me, she said to me that Sharif had told her that he was a magic person and that he also assaulted her after the first visit. And in this one, he asked her to bring a bottle of Coca-Cola, a couple of eggs and a lamb's stomach. That's what he asked her to bring the next time. He also said, this is where, oh, just, I hate this. But what he said to her was that if she gave him $500, she was missing some jewellery that her husband had taken or she believed that he'd taken. And he said, if you give me $500, I'll be able to find that jewellery because what he's done is I know where he's buried it because I've got this power and that the police can't touch me. I'll find that jewellery for you. So isn't that just so cruel? So by this stage, I I don't think I was at Brody at this stage and somebody else took over. But what happened was that um, 
He was interviewed, but they couldn't serve him with the charges because he'd gone overseas and um, apparently management wouldn't allow um, the detectives to go over to Turkey to extradite. He'd gone back to Turkey and they wouldn't allow a trip to Turkey for extradition. And so I suppose through a series of errors, he came back to Australia without authorities being notified and he wasn't served with the charges until 2013 where he was identified, would you believe, just through a routine car check. Oh, oh yeah. my God. Yeah. It pains me to say that he's um, apparently got ongoing medical and psychological problems, but he was entitled to a pretty good discount, pretty significant discount for his guilty pleas. Again, he spared the victims the trauma of giving evidence. He was jailed for 30 months uh, for this woman, and um, it was wholly suspended for 30 months. Why? Just because he's ongoing you are, I health don't know. problems. Uh, it just seems, yeah, cause, because he's got medical and psychological problems. I mean, that's sad. Mm-hmm. But I think what about those yeah. poor women and the psychological problems they've got, you know, for Because life? of him, yeah. And, you know, it's funny because, like, there's no violence or threat of violence. I mean, it. well, the gun is, I suppose. Yeah, it's a threat of violence. <laughs> that's pretty violent. Yeah. But it's just, isn't it, it's just humiliation of the highest order. Yeah. It's just such abuse of trust and of people who are looking for answers. Yeah. Apparently the court believed that he wouldn't do it again, but who actually gets up in court and says, you know, oh, well, I will do it again. You know, I know I will. I'm sure they believed he wouldn't do it again the first time. Is it like when they say, oh, you're an old person, you're an old man and you're sick, you won't, it's low risk of offending well. How many people, you know, there's been people who've offended when they're old. But I suppose also just because there's no violence, it's no less serious, is it? But I just hate the way that it was just trickery, deceit, like just so cruel. Would he be on the sex offenders register, do you reckon? Yes. Yeah, at least there's that. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.